However, I spent a great deal of time yesterday, even up to last night. I think it was a little after midnight when I finally left the church last night. Uh, trying to work on the highlights of the book of 2 Samuel, which is an extremely, extremely important book. In fact, as I've said before, 1 and 2 Samuel uh, really one time they were one book and um, they really carry some of the most important points of Jewish history which is important for us as the church because the original church was uh, in its origin 100% Jewish and it was a number of years before any Gentiles were a part of the and uh, so it is important for us to understand their history and understand what's going on. And First uh, and Second Samuel carry a great, great significance in that history. Uh, now we're going to, as a text today, actually pull a few verses from First Chronicles, uh, which goes back and tells uh, some of the story of what happened. Related in Second Samuel, uh, there's a great deal of overlapping when we get into the chronicles of the things that are covered in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And so we're going to use these verses just because they say what what I want to say about things we're going to cover today. First Chronicles chapter eleven and um, verses one through three is where we will begin today. First Chronicles 11, verses 1 through 3. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Moreover, in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over Thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Amen. Praise God. And uh, indeed we read or we studied in First Samuel how that the prophet Samuel had anointed David to be king long before that ever happened. So today we begin, and I, I do not believe that we will finish, but we shouldn't take five weeks this time to get through this book. Shouldn't. I'm not promising. I'm saying it shouldn't. But I feel certain it will take us at least two weeks uh, to get through it. We are going to begin Second Samuel today. Let's pray together right now. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through the pages of his word. Can we do that, everybody? Can we just lift our voices to the Lord right now? Ask for his help together, Lord. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. 
Jesus' name, would you just lift your voice and worship to the Lord right now? Amen. Before you're seated, let's worship the Lord together. I praise God. That's it. That's it. Let's worship Him. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Amen, 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 amen. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, before we actually get into the book of 2 Samuel uh, itself, there are a few facts that I want to review that we pointed out when we studied 1 Samuel. As I said, 1 and 2 Samuel, when they were written, were actually just one book. And the men came along and, and separated that. It was first divided into two parts by those who uh, translated the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament. When the Old Testament was first translated into Greek, uh, that's the first time that First and Second Samuel were divided into two parts. Um, and then uh, subsequently a number of other translations began to follow this process. And... Um, so it was that it has come in our Bible to be two separate books. I, I have no problem with it being separated into two books. Uh, and the reason for that is because 2 Samuel uh, deals specifically with the kingdom under David. And it was a pivotal time. In fact, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself in the study, but let me tell you that there was never a time before, nor has there been after, when Israel as a nation was so powerful and uh, so well respected and so uh, wealthy as it was under the leadership of David. It was the highlight of Israel's entire history. Amen. As a nation, as a nation, it was the highlight of their history. And so I have no problem with us separating that one point. Uh, into um, one book by itself. I, I've got no problem with that. Uh, I, I also pointed out to you that uh, what has been called the three double books of the Old Testament, that is First and Second Samuel, First and Second uh, Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, actually form a complete section, which, if you take them all together, they record the rise and fall of the Israelite monarchy. Uh, they give us the details of uh, Israel under the leadership of a king. Amen. We've, we've talked about also the fact that the, uh, even though it's called 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, uh, it should be obvious to anyone who reads the books that Samuel was not the lone author of these two books. Uh, Samuel died in 1 Samuel. And so there's no way he could have written 2 Samuel. You, you don't have to be a scholar to figure that out. Uh, and, and so it is believed by me that there were a couple of other men who helped uh, in the writing of this. And I have scripture uh, to believe this. Let's look at 1 Chronicles 29 and 29 and, and listen to what the writer says. Now the acts of David the king first and last. Behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer. And then the book of Nathan, the prophet, and then the book of Gad, the seer. And so it says that the acts of David were recorded by Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. 
And I believe that these three men, uh, I, I believe that Samuel set about to record the record up to the point of his death. I believe that Nathan stepped in and picked up from there, took the writings of Samuel the prophet, and picked up from there and, and began to tell the story. And then there was a point uh, in which Gad did the same thing. And, and you can see as you read through, especially 2 Samuel, well, you see 1 Samuel where Samuel dies, and then there is no prophet uh, that deals with Saul uh, up to the time of Saul's death. But once David assumes the throne, he immediately begins to consult Nathan the prophet. And Nathan was in his life for a good bit of the time. But there comes a time when you don't read any more about Nathan. And all of a sudden you read about him consulting Gad the prophet. And so that's why I believe this was a process and that these books or what was this book was actually a compilation by these three prophets of God. Now, we had an extremely difficult time outlining 1 Samuel uh, because of the overlapping, because of just the way that it was written. And again, this is another reason why I believe that, that uh, putting 2 Samuel in a book of its own is a good idea. Uh, I don't know that there is any book that is as easy to outline as 2 Samuel. Uh, while I had... Uh, no book that was as hard as 1 Samuel. There's no book that's as easy, I don't think, as 2 Samuel. At least none that I have done to this point. And uh, the reason for that is that really uh, the simplest outline is to break the book into two. And, um, and that's the simplest. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down just a little bit farther than that. And, and I'll talk about this some more in just a moment. But for those of you that are taking notes, let me just give you the outline First of all, uh, is chapters 1 through 4 cover David's reign over Judah. Chapters 1 through 4. Uh, chapters 5 through 12 uh, cover David's reign over all of Israel. Uh, chapters 13 through 18 talk about David's family troubles. David's family troubles. Chapters 19 through 24 talk about David's national troubles. Now, I'll go through that again here real quickly because I know sometimes in just calling that off, it's hard to write it down. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 talk about the time in which David reigned only over the tribe of Judah. He reigned in the city of Hebron, and uh, this was a time of civil war. We'll talk about that more as the lesson progresses. But uh, Israel was divided at this point. There were those who did not want David to be king, but they wanted one of the sons of Saul to be king. And as a result, Judah and the rest of Israel fought one another, and they were at odds over who was going to lead them. And this covers a period, according to Scripture, of seven years and six months. Seven years and six months. And then, uh, beginning with chapter 5, uh, we see David being made king over all of Israel and David establishes the throne, the capital city in the city of Jerusalem at this point. And again, we'll talk about that. And this was a time of great conquest and chapters 5 through 12 cover a period of some 13 years. You add this together, we're at 20 years, right? Everybody's doing their math. So what we see is this book has 24 chapters. The first 12 chapters cover the first 20 years of David's reign. 
Then you've got the last 12 chapters, chapters 13 to 24, cover the last 20 years of David's reign. David reigned for 40 years. All right? Uh, in fact, let's read this, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. And so he reigned for a total of 40 years. And, and it's very interesting that when you look at this book, you've got chapters 1 through 12, uh, the first 20 years, chapters 13 through 24, or the last 20 years. Amen. Now, I, I, we could have easily, when I said we could just divide it in half, we could have done that, a very simple outline. You know, the first 20 years, the last 20 years, and, and it would have been that simple. But I, I want a little bit more in depth than that. And so this is the way we're going to look at it, 1 through 4, reigning in Judah, 5 through 12. Just a general picture of his reign over all of Israel, though he continues to reign through the end of the books. Everybody with me? Continues to reign. But these chapters, 5 through 12, just are general chapters dealing with his reign over all of Israel. Then something happens. Something happens. Amen. And beginning with chapter 13, things are not going so well anymore for David. Up and up through, you know, up actually through about chapter 10, everything is wonderful. And in fact, even at the end of chapter 12, there's another victory recorded. And so this first half of 2 Samuel, things are going great. The last half of 2 Samuel, things are going terribly. There is a dividing line, uh, divided evenly in 20 years of his reign. The, the first 20 years were years of triumph, but the last 20 years were years of trouble. Hallelujah. You still with me? So, so we've got chapters 1 through 12, the years of triumph. And in chapter 13, trouble begins. And from there to the end of the book, it's nothing but trouble. And so what, what made this change? Why is there such a division between these two? Why was the first half of his reign triumph and the last half tragedy? Well, it's because of what happened in chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11, David committed sin. Chapter 12, David is confronted by the prophet Nathan. From the time of David's sin to the end of his reign, the whole picture changed. Well... You know, when we studied the book of Ruth, one of the things that I kept driving home, one of the points I kept making and reiterating was just because you are forgiven of your sin does not mean you are free from the consequence of that sin. And we need to realize that when we do things wrong, we may pay for it for a long, long time. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I want to tell you that, that David derived a few moments' pleasure from his sin. But he suffered many years of peril 
because of that sin. Did God forgive him? Yes, God forgave him. But he still paid. And he paid dearly. Well, hallelujah. We talked about, we went through the study of Ruth. I told you the story of the young man who was constantly doing wrong. And, and his father got him to go and drive the nails in the board. And, and then as he would do good, he was able to remove the nails. And when the day came, he finally removed the last nail. He was standing there crying. His father asked why. And he said, Dad, I can get rid of the nails, but I will never get rid of the nail holes. And the fact is that the scars that sin brings to your life can haunt you to the day you draw your final breath. Amen. Is there any hope? Of course there's hope. Amen. And to prove it, we go to the prodigal son. I want to just touch on this because we dealt with this in detail a few months ago in dealing with the book of Ruth. But Luke chapter 15 and verses 17 to 19. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. I, I'm just telling you that it is better to be a servant in the father's house than a slave in the hog pen. Well, hallelujah. So there is hope, but things may never be quite the same again. In fact, when the prodigal got back home, the father, yes, the father clothed him with the best robe, put new shoes on his feet, gave him the seal of authority once again. But he looked at the older brother and said, all that I have is, is thine. Your son has, your brother has been restored to a position of authority within the household, but he does not have everything he once had. It is not the same. Are you hearing me this morning, church? I'm telling you, your little fling, your little fling with whatever it is you want to do that you know you shouldn't be doing, I'm telling you, you may pay for it for the rest of your life. Oh yeah, sin does have pleasure. The Bible says it does. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures. The pleasures of sin. Of sin for a season. For a a season. You know seasons change. Yeah, there's pleasure. But the word season, as it appears in this verse, actually comes from a Greek word that, that literally, the, the, the interpretation is for the occasion only. The pleasures of sin for the occasion only. In other words, as soon as that occasion is over, the pleasure's gone. It doesn't last. But while the pleasure is temporary, the consequence may last a lifetime. Or even beyond a lifetime. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin. Now, to me, I, I found this interesting that Hebrews would talk about the pleasures of sin. And Romans talks about the wages of sin. You see, for those pleasures, there are wages. And the pleasures are temporary. But the wages are eternal. Hallelujah. One man wrote, 2 Samuel emphasizes that all sin, whether in king or commoner, whether in high or low, whether in the godly or the godless, certainly brings its bitter fruitage. Sin is the destroyer of prosperity. However full and fair the tree may look, if rot is eating its way within the trunk, the tree will surely break and fall or else become a leafless skeleton. There is no sinning without suffering. Especially is all this true about the lust of the eye and sexual sin, which was the point of David's breakdown. We should flee it like we would a viper. He goes on to say, see too how David's sin led on to the even greater sin of murder. More often than not, one sin leads to another of a worse kind. Let us, like Job, make a covenant with our eyes. Not to look on that which is seductive. Lest weaker than we suppose ourselves to be, we should give way to sin and thereby heap sharp thorns into our bosom. Amen. And I'm telling you, if there's any lesson we ought to learn from 2 Samuel, it is that. It is that. There are consequences to us indulging ourselves in what we want to do. Let's talk about David's reign over Judah, chapters 1 through 4. Um, and, and let me also, let me just point out that even though I've chosen to identify this part of the outline as David's reign over Judah, the, act, the book actually opens prior to him actually reigning uh, over Judah. Chapter 1 tells the story of David's discovery of the death of Saul and Jonathan and his reaction. And, and I want to tell you, and I, I don't really want to deal with it a lot. We dealt with, in the last lesson, Saul's death and the tragedy of his life and uh, how he had played the fool. He wrote his own epitaph and uh, said, I have played the fool. And that's exactly the story of Saul's life in its entirety. There's no better way to describe King Saul than that. He played the fool. We talked about that in great detail, so I don't really want to go over that. We even talked about how that Saul uh, attempted suicide, and uh, it was later discovered that an Amalekite came along and finished him off. So I don't want to deal with that so much in today's lesson as I do the way that David responded when he learned of Saul's death. Now there are some things that we need to consider before I show you what David had to say about Saul's death. I want you to remember that up until this point, David has been running for his life from Saul. 
Saul was not David's enemy by choice. Saul made himself David's enemy. David didn't look at him that way, but Saul did his best to make it that way. David has been spending a number of years running from Saul. Just trying to save his own skin. Remember that David long ago was promised that he was going to be Saul's successor. And so the day that Saul died, that means David now has a clear road to the fulfillment of God's own promise. Shouldn't that make him happy? As he's standing there realizing there's nothing that now stands between me and the fulfillment of the promise of God, shouldn't this be a day of rejoicing? Well, according to our logic, it should. But that was not David's perspective. In fact, throughout his life, I'm telling you this, as I studied this book of 2 Samuel, it amazed me over and over and over again. When David's enemies died, he never rejoiced. He never one time was happy that his enemy was dead. Never. Never. Are you getting this? I want you to, to notice David's reaction to what he is told by the Amalekite. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And then David took hold on his clothes and rent them. And likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and, and wept. And they mourned and wept. And fasted till evening. And even. fasted until evening. They're not shouting and dancing and rejoicing. David is sorry this has happened. David regrets what has taken place. Amen. Let's go on. I'm going to try to save some time. Let's go down to verse 17. And, and uh, this is a lengthy passage. But I want you to hear in its entirety the words that come from David's heart. Now... Before we read it, let me just remind you. When we were dealing with 1 Samuel, I pointed out to you how when, when Saul made that comment, I have played the fool, that it was most likely at, a, at an unguarded moment when he bore his soul. Usually in times of stress, duress, uh, shock, anger, frustration, that's when we really speak our mind. I know when we get mad and say things, well, I didn't mean it, I was mad. But the fact of the matter is... That's probably what you really did mean. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so I'm telling you that at this moment when David is overwhelmed by the shock and the grief of what happens, what we're about to hear is not something David's having to make up. It's not some lines that someone else has written for him and he's rehearsed. What we are seeing, we are looking through a window into the depths of David's soul as he expresses his true feelings. Start with verse 17 and start reading. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. 
The beauty of Israel is now, here's, here's what he's saying. This is what his heart expresses at this moment. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high, high places. How are the mighty How fallen? are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. We're not going to go around bragging about the fact that our enemy is dead because he's really not our enemy. He was God's anointed, and I don't want our real enemies to rejoice over this. Read. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no let dew. Let there be no dew. Neither let there be rain Don't upon you. Let there you, be any rain. Nor fields of offering. Nor let there be any crops. For there the shield of the mighty the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away. cast away. And the shield of Saul, shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, and the boat of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant Saul in their lives. And John, now listen to what he's, he's talking about the man that's been trying to kill him. Are you? I, I don't know if you're getting this, church. He's talking about the man that's been chasing him, that's been spreading lies about him, that has been doing his best to destroy him, and he says they were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. Swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Weep over Saul. Who clothed you in scarlet with other delights and put on... Ornament, ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty How fallen in the midst the of the battle? How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high place. I am distressed, I for, am thee, distressed brother, for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty How fallen? How are the mighty and the, fallen? And the weapons of war. And the weapons of war. Do you not find it interesting at all that in this eulogy, David never said one bad thing about Saul? He never one time remembered the years he ran from him. He never one time recalled the problems Saul caused him. All he did was to magnify the man and the good he had done. David was not rejoicing at the opportunity that was now afforded him. Rather, he was remorseful at the tragedy that had befallen all of Israel. I'm telling you, there's a lesson in this church. There is a lesson about our attitudes toward other people. And how it is so easy for us to rejoice when someone else falls. Especially if that means a step up for us. But David had no such attitude. David was truly grieved that Saul, the anointed of God, was fallen. It broke his heart. Now, once the days of mourning for Saul were over, 
David began to seek God. And, and really, that's, that's such an important thing because in these early years, you see David seeking God and seeking direction from God and from the prophet of God over and over again. He's, he's trying to find direction. And he asked God, what do you want me to do and where do you want me to go? And, and God said, go to Hebron. So David went to Hebron. And remember that during the time he was running from Saul, uh, there were a number of men that came and joined themselves to David. And David really had an army at this time. That They were loyal men. They were followers of his uh, that were there with him, protecting him, fighting for him. And, and, and so he and his mighty men go to the city of Hebron. And without David really having to do one thing, the promises of God began to be fulfilled on their own. Second Samuel chapter 2 verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and they, there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that, were they that buried Saul. Now, I, I don't really want to get into this whole Jabesh-Gilead burying Saul and all that. David did reward them because they honored the man who had been king. But, but that's another, another lesson. I don't have time to go on everything that's happening here. What I want you to see is David and his men are in the city of Hebron, and here come the people of this one tribe, and, and this is important. There's just one tribe that says to David, we want you to be our king. Now, you know, David, number one, could have stepped into Hebron and blown the trumpets and said, David is king. He had a promise from God, didn't he? Didn't he? Hello, are you out there? Um, he had a promise from God, and he could have walked in with his mighty men and said, All right, everybody, it's time to bow. The king has arrived. He didn't do it. He just went and set up house. And the people of Judah came to him and made him king. David never forced himself into the throne. Now, I find it interesting that the rest of Israel would not accept him as king. But instead, under the direction of Abner, who had been the captain of Saul's army, decided to take Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and make him king. So you've got one tribe out of the twelve that makes David king, the other eleven make Saul's son Ishbosheth their king. And this was under the direction of Abner. Is everybody with me? Abner, the captain of the army, leads the people to crown Ishbosheth as king. Now, the reason this is a problem is because Abner knew better. And I'll prove that to you. But not only did Abner know better, all of Israel knew better. And I'll prove that to you as well. Here are the scriptures. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And this, this is at a little bit later time, and Abner's talking to Ishbosheth. But I want you to hear what Abner says. It's in a moment of anger, and again, in those fits of anger, we often reveal a lot of things about ourselves. And listen to what he says here in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord as has the sworn Lord to David. To David. Everybody see this. Abner says, God made this promise to David. What did he promise? 
Even so I do to him. Uh-huh. To translate the kingdom from the house of Saul. God promised to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul. And to set up, and the, to throne set of up the throne of David. Over Israel. Over Israel. And over Judah. And over Judah from Dan, from to, Beersheba. Dan to Beersheba. Now, Abner's talking to the man he made king. But in a moment of anger, he says to him, God promised David he would be king. Abner knew it. Abner knew it. He knew better than to do what he was doing, but he did it anyhow. Uh, he says it again a few verses later. Verses 17 and 18, read. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, You sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken the of Lord, David. For the Lord has spoken of David. Saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of the, all their enemies. The Lord said, I'm going to use David. Listen, Abner knew full well what he was doing when he did it. But it didn't stop with Abner. The people knew it too. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Also in this time is when the past. people finally do come to David to make him king. Here's what they admit. Chapter 5, verse 2. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that ledest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Israel said, and the Lord said and unto thee, And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed, thou my, shalt people feed Israel, my people Israel, and thou shalt and be a thou captain shalt over Israel. Be a captain over the people admitted to David when they finally came to make him king. We've known all along this is what God wanted. They knew better than to do what they were doing, but they did it anyhow. Now, this made me stop and scratch my head. Why did Abner not want David? Well, you know, I, I, the Bible doesn't tell us. So this is strictly my opinion. It's strictly conjecture, all right? Everybody understands. I'm not telling you. I'm not giving you a definitive answer. But I think Abner was afraid of losing his position. David already had a captain over his army. And I think Abner was a little worried that if David becomes king, I lose my job. I know what God wants, but I know what I want. And I'm going to do what I want rather than what God wants. Can't prove that, but I just have a feeling that that's what was going on. Now, why didn't Israel want David? Why were they fighting against the will of God? Well, you know, again, I, I don't have answers for these questions, church. I, I, I wish that I did. I wish the scripture just said plainly they did this because. But it doesn't. So again, all I can do is surmise. But I, I think, I think, maybe there was a question in their mind. Because if you'll remember back, at one point when David was running from Saul, he went 
to the Philistines and stayed with them for a while. Remember that? I wonder if there was a little bit of doubt in the minds of the people as to where David's real allegiances were. I wonder if there might have been a trust problem here. David's behavior in that delicate situation, however, is to be commended. I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm, I'm just throwing it out because I don't know. I don't know why they did it. I don't know why they rejected him. Uh, I have no idea uh, other than just, as I said, my guess, that maybe they just didn't trust him anymore. Maybe somehow God had to prove to them David really does mean well and David will be loyal and he is on the right side of things and he's not joining forces with the Philistines. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But whatever was the reason, they didn't want David to be king. But I want to tell you that the way David responded to their refusal is commendable. Because again, he did not try to force himself to the throne. He had an army. And I want to tell you that as you study Ishbosheth, he's a very weak man. Ishbosheth was not a great leader, he was not a powerful warrior. David had a lot going for him that Ishbosheth did not have. In fact, the only thing Ishbosheth had was the fact that he was Saul's son. That was it. He was a weak man. Was not a great leader. David could have brought his men in and overthrown the kingdom of Ishbosheth and said, Look, God promised that I'd be king, and you all know that's the truth. But David did not do that. Seven and a half years, David remained as king only over Judah. David's attitude from the day he was anointed was, if God wants me on the throne, God will put me on the throne. But I'm not going to force myself into that position. Well, praise God. And of course, it, it paid off. And, and because of David's attitude, the Lord showed where his favor was. God began to reveal what was going on. There, there was war. It, as I said, this was a time of civil war. Uh, the, the people of Judah who were loyal to David were fighting with the people of Israel who were loyal to Ishbosheth. David never once tried to assume the throne, but there was just constant conflict between the two. But God began to show his favor. Listen to this verse of Scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger but David and stronger. David waxed stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul waxed Saul weaker and weaker. weaker and weaker. God was showing the people of Israel whom they could trust. God was revealing to them by his own methods that this was the man whom he had chosen. Amen. Now, during the time in which God was revealing his favor upon David, there was another problem. And that was that there was strife 
in the kingdom of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, and I have no idea why, he just decided to throw this accusation at Abner. Accused Abner of, of taking his father's wives. And Abner was blown away by it. What, what? am I a dead dog? What, 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 are you, what are you saying all this for? What, what have I done to you? I'm the one that put you on the throne. And because of this internal conflict, Abner decided, you know what? It's obvious God's hand is on David. And it's obvious this kingdom's going down. Now, I believe Abner was, was a position seeker. I believe Abner was a ladder climber. Adam knew which way the winds were blowing. Uh, Abner knew which way the winds were blowing. And Abner decided, I'm not going to be loyal to Ishbosheth anymore. I'm going to see if I can get a hold of David and go his way. And so he sent word to David. And again, it's, it's a long story. I can't go chapter by chapter. We'll, we will take five weeks. But, but he contacted David and made a league with David. And uh, uh, said, look, I, I want to come and be on your side and uh, a series of events, however, then unfolded uh, that, that ended in Abner's death. And again, I want you to see how David reacts to the death of a man who had been his enemy. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 31 and 34. David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes. And gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the beard. Now, now, now look. Abner had been the man that had been keeping David from being king. But when Abner died, David says, All right, men, it's time for mourning. Read. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave and of Abner. He wept. He wept. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool died. Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so fillest thou. And all the people wept again over him. David wept at the death of yet another of his enemies. Now, once Abner was dead, Ishbosheth, who was a weak leader anyhow, realized his strength and his power was now gone. And he became even more fearful. He was watching his own kingdom crumble all around him. One day as he was napping, there were two men who came in, caught him asleep, and beheaded him. They took the head of Ishbosheth and ran to David with it, thinking David's going to rejoice. Ishbosheth is out of the way. David's about to become king over all Israel. The last hurdle has now been crossed. It's time for celebration. They run to David expecting a pat on the back. That's not what they got. Again, the death of one of David's enemies. And David was not impressed. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron. And said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth. 
the son of Saul, thine enemy, thine enemy, which sought thy life, sought thy life, and the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered, Rachel, David answered, and Baana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul, me, is Saul is dead, is dead thinking to have brought thinking good tidings, brought good tidings I, told, I, I took hold, took of, him hold of him and, z- and slew, him slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I, had, thought I would have been given him a reward for his tidings. Him a reward. How much more? His reward was I killed him for doing it. And how much more? When wicked men when have wicked slain men a righteous slain person. A, Church, I don't know. Maybe this is not getting to you like it's getting to me. But I'm watching every opportunity David has to slam somebody, to attack somebody, to tear somebody down. Every chance he gets, he blows it. He refuses. He refuses to verbally attack even his enemies. He says of Ishbosheth, you have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed. Shall I not therefore I now not require therefore his blood of your hand? Now require his blood of and your take hand you away from and the earth? take you away from the earth. And David commanded his young men. Now listen to this. And slew them. They slew them. And cut off their and hands. And cut off their and hands. And their feet. And their feet and hang them up and over the hang pool. them up over the pool in Hebron. in Hebron. Made them a spectacle to everybody. For doing what? For killing David's enemy. But what did he do? But they took the head of took Ishbosheth the head of Ishbosheth and buried it and in, buried the it in the sepulchre of Abner, of Abner, of Abner. in Hebron. He showed more respect to his enemy than he did to somebody that was in rebellion against authority. Hello? I think I saw a couple uh, squirm just then. There was more respect given to his enemy than to those who rose up against their leader. A lot of folks would have been rejoicing. A lot of folks would have been shouting and dancing because David's very last hurdle was now crossed. This was it. There was nothing else standing in his way. There was nobody to stop him now from being king. But he refused to rejoice over any act of rebellion. So, chapter 5 begins the next section. David's reign over all Israel Uh, What we find immediately as we get into chapter 5 is the people of Israel coming and admitting their mistake uh, as they approach David. This is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that ledest us out and broughtest us in Israel. Broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be captain over Israel. All right, now, up, up to this point, 
just a minute, I'm not quite ready for verse 3. Up to this point uh, in verse 2, verses 1 and 2 sounds a lot like the text we read from 1 Chronicles. And it was a lot. But the reason why I used the passage from 1 Chronicles is because it went on to say that all this happened in accordance with the prophecy of Samuel. And so that's why I used that rather than this. But anyhow, I just wanted to point that out to you. It's, it basically, they say the same thing there. Uh, when Saul was king, thou ledest, uh, thou was he that ledest out and brought us in Israel. The Lord said to thee, thou shalt feed my people. Thou shalt be a captain over Israel. They're admitting God is the one who set this up. We should have known that. We should have recognized that from the very beginning. We fought against it. We were self-willed. We did our own thing. But now we're coming to you with a totally different attitude about it. And so verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron. And King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed, and they David, anointed David king, king over, Israel. over Israel. David was 30 David years was old, 30 when, he years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 he years. reigned for 40 years. You know, it's been a long, hard struggle for David. He's run for many years. He has sat as just the king of Judah for seven and a half years. But the day finally came when the promise of God was fulfilled. Now the first act of David as king was to establish a strategic capital. Remember that up until this point he's been reigning only in the city of Hebron, which was far to the south and, and not really that easily accessible by all of Israel. He wanted a city that would be easily accessible by all of the nation. Uh, he also wanted a city that could be fortified, that could be protected. There were a lot of reasons why he looked to the city of Jerusalem to become his capital. Amen. I, I believe that David had already thought this out and David had been planning to make Jerusalem his capital for a long time. Amen. In fact, let me show you something. First Samuel... We're going to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the story of David and Goliath, all right? Does everybody remember? What, you know, most of what we know of David and Goliath is that he runs out there with a sling and stone, and the sling brings the giant down, and that's kind of where we end the story, but that's not where the story really ends. David then goes to the giant who's been knocked down by the stone, takes the giant's own sword, and decapitates him. The story doesn't even end there. David takes the head of the giant and does something with it. Let's read 1 Samuel 17, verse 54. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to and Jerusalem. brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Jerusalem. Now, you know, from the days of Joshua, Jerusalem was one city in this land that had, that had maintained its own uh, forces that had not been conquered by the Israelites. It was still controlled uh, by the Jebusites. Uh, in fact, at this point, it was actually called Jebus. And, and it was the Jebusites who, who lived there. And, and so David wasn't taking it to a city that was run by the people of Israel. He was going to the city that was run by the Jebusites. And he ran there carrying the head of Goliath. Now, why did he do that? Well, I believe it was for two reasons. I believe there were two reasons why David took Goliath's head to the city of Jerusalem. Um, I, I do believe that in David's mind, he was making a statement about what was going to happen to Jerusalem. All right? 
Now, I'm convinced that he was directed by God to this city. And I think there are two reasons for this. First of all, God had stated a long time ago that some city would be the city of his choosing. Let's listen to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 11. This is way back under Moses. Listen to what is said. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite that is within thy gates and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place. All right, now, now th there's a lot in this verse, but here's what I want you to notice. The first line, thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God. And we skip down in the place which the Lord thy God, which the Lord thy God hath chosen, hath chosen to place his name, to there. Place his name there. God wasn't just talking about a country. He wasn't talking about a piece of land. He was talking about a specific city. And I'll prove that to you because after David is gone and his son uh, becomes king, uh, there, there are things that begin to happen here, and we'll talk about some of that. But, but years later, years later, God confirmed that Jerusalem was that place. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36. And unto his son will I give one tribe, that David my, my servant may have a light always before me in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. The city. The city. Which I have which chosen, I have chosen me, me to put my to name put there. To put my name there. God said, I chose Jerusalem. It was hinted at under Moses. It was exposed during the time of the kings many years later. But I believe that God was directing David to choose this city. This was God's choice. Jerusalem was God's choice. Amen. Now, I think that's reason number one why David took the head of Goliath out there, why David chose Jerusalem. But I think there was a second reason why. I believe that when David went running to the city of Jerusalem with the head of Goliath in his hands, he was preparing for his future kingdom. Remember, this is chapter 17. This is right after he's been anointed in chapter 16 to be the next king. The anointing oil is still stained into his clothing. He still smells the sweet spices. David's memory is fresh. I'm going to be a king. And as soon as he brings that victory uh, uh, over the giant, he grabs the giant's head and he runs to a strategic city and shows the people the head of the giant. Now, I believe David was preparing for a future victory. See, back to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel in our studies. I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but, but in chapter 5, David's been made king, verses 1 through 4, he's made king. Verse 6, David says, we're going to set up a throne in Jerusalem, of all places. So here's what happens, chapter 5, verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, and saying, they spake to David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither. Thinking David cannot come in thither. The King James kind of convolutes the idea here. Um, I actually, I I don't know if you've got the New Century version back there or not. I put it in the in the list of verses, um, but if you don't, don't worry about it. I, I'll read it. Second uh, Samuel five and six from the New Century version gives us a little bit of insight into. Uh, what is actually being said in this verse. 
It says, when the king and his men went to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there, the Jebusites said to David, you can't get inside our city. Even the blind and the crippled can stop you. They thought David could not enter their city. So here's, here's what happens. David go, David's made king. He goes to Jerusalem. He said, we're going to take this city. You've been a stronghold for a long time. You've been the last holdout of this land, but we are taking you, and we're going to make you the capital over, uh, uh, of, the, of the nation of God's people. And they said, oh, David, come on. Even if, it, if we were nothing but blind and lame, you couldn't defeat us. I'm telling you, that way back when David was freshly anointed, he had come running to that city with the head of the giant. And you know what he was doing? He was saying, I want you Jebusites to see something. The same God who gave me victory over this giant is going to give me victory over this city one day. You're not going to remain a holdout. I will take this city. Well, hallelujah. I'm telling you, David was not afraid of them. David did not worry at what they said. Read verses 7 through 10. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. David took the stronghold of Zion. The same as the city of David. that has become the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into, this, into the house. So David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Now listen to me. David was not afraid of the Jebusites. He reached back into his memory and he recalled carrying that bloody severed head of Goliath up that hillside and he was thinking and saying by his actions, if Goliath couldn't stop me, you sure can't stop me. Amen. David learned a valuable lesson of using one victory to prepare for future victories. Is anybody listening to me this morning as I'm trying to get a point across to you? If God has ever promised you anything, don't let the devil's taunt stop you. Amen. You grab a hold of some victory in your past. You grab a hold of some answered prayer in your past. And you wave it in the devil's face and say the same God that heard me back then is going to hear me again. The same God that brought me through back then is going to bring me through. Oh, somebody. Listen to this preacher right now. I'm telling you, if God gave you Goliath, He can give you Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Amen. There's nothing that can stop me when I've got the promise of God. God's going to do it. God's going to do it. Amen. And David took the city of Jerusalem. Now, his first act, take the city of Jerusalem and make it the capital. The second act as king was, this is not just going to be the place of my throne. I don't know how many of you remember this, but, but I pointed out that when God first allowed Israel to have a king, the idea behind the kingdom of Israel was that the human king would partner with the divine king. Anybody remember me saying that? That was the plan of God from the beginning. That, that this human king is not going to launch out on his own and do his own thing, but he's going to work with 
the king of kings. And, and David understood that principle. And David said, I'm not just going to put my throne in Jerusalem. But I'm going to put God's throne in Jerusalem. And so the second act that David did was to go and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to Jerusalem. He's bringing God's throne to the capital city. Now that was his plan. And, and you know, we haven't read about the Ark for a long time now. I mean, way back in 1 Samuel, uh, right after the people of, of uh, Kirjath-Jerim brought it back and it was, it was stationed there, that's the last we read of the Ark of the Covenant until now 2 Samuel. And, and we get over into chapter 6 and David said, look, it's been sitting over there too long. It needs a place to dwell and it needs to be in the capital of this nation. And so he decides to bring the Ark back. The problem was he didn't consult the Scriptures. Now, his, his motive was right, but his method was wrong. Hello? You know, God, God does care about methods. He cares about motives, but he also cares about methods. I mean, that, that, look, that principle was established back in the Garden of Eden. Cain decided to offer sacrifice, but he didn't want to do it God's way. And God rejected him. Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Now, you know, I hope that you saw this. Um, David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, on harps, psalteries, timbrels, cornets, cymbals. You talk about praise and worship, it is going up before God. And God loves praise. And God loves worship. But it didn't matter how much praise was going on. Everything has to be done in accordance with the commandments of God. And we say, why are you so critical? At least they're praising God. Look, I'm glad they praise God. But if you're going to praise God, you've got to do it in accordance with the Scripture. This is not just an Old Testament principle. Listen to what Jesus said, John 4 and 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship, they that him, worship him must worship whoa, him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did he say what I think he said? Did, did he just use that word? Did, did Jesus say that? They that worship him must 
worship him. In spirit and in truth. Not just in spirit, but in truth. And so true worship, true worship is balanced worship. That not only has the spiritual dimension, it has the scriptural dimension. And anytime you leave the scriptural dimension, I, I don't care how much spiritual dimension you have, God doesn't accept it. All right. Just, and again, I know this sounds critical, but I'm just trying to drive a point home this morning, church. This is Bible study time. I'm trying to drive some points home. But I, I just was, was, was directed to a little uh, clip on the internet of a, of a church that says they preach the truth. And, and, and it was a time of worship. But they had things going on on the platform that the Bible clearly says is an abomination to God. And yet they're worshiping God in what they're doing. Well, I'm here to tell you. I'm not being critical. I'm being biblical. God is not impressed. In fact, God gets angry at that kind of garbage. God wants you to worship, but He wants you to do it within the confines of Scripture. I'm telling you that what was a day of celebration and rejoicing quickly turned to a day of mourning and repentance and soul searching. When, when, use a, this is, I don't have time to go into all this, but it's interesting to me. He was just trying to help God out. I mean, he was just trying to help God out. The, the, the oxen stumbled. The, the ark was sitting on a cart, and the oxen stumbled. And, and this is the prized possession of Israel. This is the symbol of God's presence. And it's about to fall to the ground. Yusa didn't want it to fall to the ground and be defiled and be broken and whatever else might happen. He so he just all he's going to do is steady it. I just want to help God out. God doesn't need your help. And God said, don't touch it. When God says, don't touch something, He's not leaving any exceptions. Don't touch it unless it's falling over. Don't touch it unless... It was kind of, well, it helped me, Lord. Kind of like our tithing, you know. God said, don't touch it. But some of us think, well, you know, I've got to this week. Well, I've got to... Anyhow, another story for another day. Uh, David was distraught over what happened. David sought God. He realized there was a scriptural way that it should be done, and that was to be carried upon the shoulders of the priests. And you know, if the priests had had that ark uh, in being carried on the staves on their shoulders, it wouldn't have mattered how unleveled the ground had gotten. The ark would never fall. There was never a danger of the ark if they'd have just done it God's way. Well, they eventually did do it God's way, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and the throne of God uh, was in symbol set up in that city, amen, as a result of David's desire. Uh, however, David was troubled in his heart. I've only got a few minutes here, but David uh, got the Ark there. He was troubled because he just had a tent spread over it to protect it, and David was looking around at his own house, and there was something bothering him. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest around about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in an house of cedar, 
But the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. David said there's something wrong with this picture. My house is better than God's house. Well, what an attitude David had. What an attitude David had. He said, you know, Nathan, something's wrong here. Something is bad, bad wrong because my house is better than God's house. And, and I don't, I don't like this idea. I don't like I don't like the fact that I've got this house of cedar and all God's got is curtains, just a tent that, that's, that bothers me. He said, you know what I want to do? I want to build a house for God. I want God's house to be far better than Now I don't have these I don't have these verses in my notes, and I don't really have time for us to have to look them up. But you know, here's what what I find interesting because David's attitude was I don't want my house to be better than God's house, and yet when David's son Solomon steps to the throne and Solomon actually builds God a house, the Bible says in First Kings chapter six verse thirty eight that Solomon was seven years building God's house. It took him seven years to build this house for God, and that was after David had spent his life laying aside all of the materials and getting things ready and preparing people for it, it still took seven years to build. Now that's the last, chap last verse of chapter 6. The first verse of chapter 7 says, but Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Seven years to build God's house and twice as long to build his own. Something's happened to this perspective that his dad had. David said, I, I don't like the idea that I'm dwelling in a house of cedars and God, the ark of God is just in a place of curtains. I, I don't like this. And, and Nathan, Nathan thought it was a great idea. It was a commendable thing. And Nathan said, David, go and do everything that God's put in your heart. It's, it's a worthy desire and, and, and uh, God bless you for what you want to do. And Now David, uh, Nathan, Nathan was only speaking his own opinion. Nathan hadn't prayed about it yet. Nathan was just telling him, this is, see church, oh, if I only had another hour to teach, I don't. But, but you know, this is why sometimes folks come to the pastor and they say, well, what about so-and-so? And many times, many times I tell you, now look, I haven't had time to pray about it. This is just my gut feeling. And people want to take that as law and gospel and then never give me the opportunity to come back and say, wait a minute. I've prayed about it and that's not what God wants. I was just telling you my opinion. That's exactly what happened. Now, Nathan told David, said, yeah, go ahead. And, and Nathan didn't hardly get out of the driveway, if you please. And God said, uh, go back in there and tell him what I think about it. God said, David, I, I appreciate the fact that you want to do this, but I want you to understand there's been a problem. Your hands are way too bloody to build a house for me. And I'm not going to let you do it, but I will let your son do it. Now, that had to be a blow to David. Understanding his attitude and his, his desire. And, and even the way, I mean, look at what he's done. He has wept over his enemies. He has defended his enemies. And, and yet God said, your hands are too bloody and you, you can't do it. 
But in spite of God not allowing David to do it, uh, oh, I don't really have time to. Let me just go ahead and come to, to the music. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to come back next week and just pick up at this point. But let me just say this to you that really what, what happened and what God then said to, to David, and it's a lengthy passage, verses 11 to 16 of chapter 7 here. It's a lengthy passage. But what God did say to David as a result of David's desire forever changed the course of history. There is something that is spoken in response to David's desire to build God a house. God said, you're not going to build me a house. But I tell you what, I'm going to do something for you. And what God spoke to David in those verses impacted the entire course of human history. Now I'm telling you, God was impressed with David's attitude. God had some principles he wouldn't cross. But he was impressed with David's attitude. There's something about it when people value the house of God more than their own possessions. I remember years ago being at a youth camp. There was a young man that had been brought to God. He'd been a drug addict. Life had been messed up. When he came to God, he just fell in love with the Lord. And, I mean, he was totally sold out to God. And uh, this young man, while many were out on the ball field during recreation time, you know, in between the services of the, of the camp, they'd have ball games going on. They had things happening. This young man was never out on the ball field. But I'm telling you, at any, any time that there was free time at the camp, you could walk by that old tabernacle, which was just an open-air building. Some of you that have been out to Milton Vale know about those open-air buildings. But this was a huge, huge building, but it was just no, you know, no real sides. It wasn't closed in, just some posts holding up a big uh, roof, half-moon roof, and, and concrete floor. I'm telling you that any time that there was free time on that campground, you could walk by that old, dusty, dirty tabernacle where the wind could just blow the dirt in from the sides, and it did often. And he would be in there with a broom, sweeping that concrete, praying and loving God. Nobody asked him to do it. Nobody told him he had to do it. But there was a deep, deep love in his heart for the house of God. It's where he wanted to. It's where he longed to be. And can I tell you that God looked down on that and saw that. And God put his hand on that young man. And he became a dynamic preacher of the gospel. God is impressed with our attitude toward him and the things that we ascribe to him. God looks at how much we spend on ourselves, how much time we take for ourselves, and how much time we take for God. God looks at all that. I'm telling you, God weighs it all out. God sees when we've got to have the latest, the greatest, the most expensive, 
the fanciest. And then we have to scrimp, save, and cut, and just to give a few pennies to God. God sees all that. But he also was standing there that day when that widow walked through. And after everyone had dropped their hundreds and thousands into the offering plate, that little woman put two mites and Jesus got excited. You know what excited him? This is the last she's got. She could have taken this and bought herself something. She could have gone and bought a meal, but she cares more about my house than she does her own welfare. And God was impressed. Are you hearing me this morning, church? I know we're not shouting and running and we're not really weeping either, but I hope you're sitting there thinking about what I'm telling you. Somehow we've got to get our priorities right in this. In America especially, we are in such hot pursuit of things. We are. It's all about things. We want to impress the neighbors want to impress our fellow church members. We want to impress our co-workers with what we own or what we wear or what we drive or where we live. We so want to impress them. Well, You know, when my wife and I went to New York for our 25th anniversary a few years ago, there were men on the streets that would open these briefcases, and they had all these Rolex lookalikes. Now, why would somebody want a Rolex lookalike? Why would they want that? To impress. That's the only... It's not for the mechanism. It's not because of how well it runs. It's to impress somebody else. We care about what people think. We buy look-alike. I don't even know what the latest fads are. Gucci and Coach and whatever. You know, we want to buy the look-alike. Because those from a distance think we've really got something here. Why does it matter? Or some won't buy the lookalikes. They want to pay top dollar. Why? Does it really serve the purpose any better? Really? Does a $600 purse carry your items better than a $60 purse? Well, does a $1,000 hand-tailored, I don't know if you can get one for $1,000, $1,000 hand-tailored suit really, really do a better job of making you presentable than a $100 suit from KMG? Really? Or is it about impressing someone?
I wonder what would happen if we had $1,000 to spend on a hand-tailored suit. I wonder what would happen if we'd go to KMG and buy the $100 one and give the 900 to God. I wonder, I wonder if God wouldn't be more impressed. No, I don't wonder. I know he would. Well, hallelujah. I'm telling you that there was something about David's attitude that caused God to make David a promise like he had made to no other. God loved what David said. Though he wouldn't let him do it, he loved the idea. Let's stand this morning. We'll come back and talk about it. We'll... Uh, pick up on it next week the Lord willing my time is up there's a lot there's a lot yet to cover we're we're just starting into chapter 7 there's 24 chapters so we still got a long way to go we're not even quite a third of the way through the book but I promise you I promise you leading up here in the first half of the book we're going to spend a lot more time than we are have for some reasons you'll understand later. Right now, what is important to us is that we comprehend how God checks and weighs motives. See, in, in chapter 6, in chapter 6, the motive was right, the method was wrong. In chapter 7, God looked down and saw a motive that was right. And yet he would not allow him to pursue the method, but he still blessed him because of the motive. God does check our motives. God does examine our hearts. And it is so very important that we learn to put him first. Seek ye Where Where is it? Seek ye what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things, all these, all these, what? Get it in your mind, church, that's all they are. They're just things. They're just things. Seek His kingdom. Seek his righteousness and all these things will be added. You don't have to seek them. God will give you the things you really need. But what we need more than anything, we need God. We need God. Let's lift our hands and talk to him right now, can we? bring this service to a close, would you just talk to him right where you're at? God, help me to put you first. Help me to 